This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So, dear brothers and sisters, uh, very pleased indeed to uh, be addressing you all here in Windhorse Trading. What are, what are you now? Windhorse Evolution? It'll always be Windhorse Trading to me uh, in your warehouse. Uh, yes, it is a long time since I've been here, but uh, I really love Windhorse Evolution. It's uh, something I'm very proud of uh, that for me is a, a key aspect of our movement and our work. So I'm very pleased indeed to be here and to well, offer my support to you through being here. Uh, I think it's something very, very valuable that you are doing, that you have done, and that you will do. Uh, so mainly that's what I want to do, is just express my strong belief in what you do, uh, in the importance of what you do, and my uh, support for you. I, I was thinking that... Uh, I was in really at the very beginning of uh, um, right livelihood businesses in FWBO. What are we now? Tree Ratner. Um, the, first, the first business that we have, I, I had, I think is probably well known, uh, was started by Ratnaguna. He started a, a food stall at a market, uh, what later became Friends Foods. Um, rest in peace. Um, and uh, then uh, uh, just after that we started the building work at uh, what's now the London Buddhist Centre Subhadra was there at that time and uh, there were I think at the height of it about 35 men living and working together in what is now the, the London Buddhist Centre in the, in the communities upstairs and uh, they were the best of times and the worst of times. It was uh, um, chaotic, sometimes fractious, uh, sometimes extremely uh, insecure. Money ran out, an old story. Uh, but it was also extremely exciting, very strong sense of companionship. Uh, and we were young. We uh, uh, had the sense that we were in some way changing the world. It was especially important to us that we were going into a really very decayed uh, working class area of London, whereas our appeal had always been to the Hampsteads of, uh, of, uh, of Britain. And uh, we were transforming this wrecked fire station, which had had a fire in it. And, uh, but more than anything, we, we, we sensed that we were creating a, well, a world within the walls of the, of the building. Uh, I remember once... Uh, noticing that somebody had written on the door out of the building, you are now entering Sangsara. The next day, somebody crossed out uh, entering and put transforming. Uh, so there's very much that sense that we were transforming Sangsara, uh, that uh, it wasn't just a question of building a private world, as it were, of, of a perfect world, or idealized world uh, within a larger uh, chaotic one, but of 
doing that so that we could transform the world as a whole. So we'd been there for two, three years, and with great difficulty we're end, uh, uh, approaching the end of the project. And uh, I got a message from Bante. He was down at uh, Ariatara uh, leading a women's seminar, a seminar for women order members. And he wanted to see me. And he'd been concerned about the plans at uh, the LBC, particularly the, the plan of the, the, the shrine room. So I went with, I uh, quickly got all the, 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 uh, the drawings together and all the, the um, ground plans and so forth, with great difficulty getting them out of the various parties who were concerned with preparing them. Then I bundled them all together and got on the tube train and the train. No cars in those days. We were lucky to get a bullet cart. We didn't have any money, man. We couldn't afford a car. And um, so, you know, I went down. I, I went to see Bante, and I got out my plans. And he wasn't the slightest interested in them. He sort of looked at this beautiful drawing that I'd uh, got somebody to do of the courtyard. He just looked at it and said, hmm. And then, uh, then he said, well, what are we going to do with all these people working here? You know. As far as I was concerned, when the project ended, they were on their own. Uh, but Bante was wanting to know what was going to happen with them after the, uh, the project ended. And he said, you know, we've created something quite special. Uh, how are we going to get that to continue? We need to find uh, work for people. Uh, because of the experience that we had working together to build the the, the uh, the old fire station, turn it into the London Buddhist Centre and the various communities. And the, the, uh, there was a women's community on a parallel um, journey nearby, Amaravati, as it was then. Not the Amaravati that exists now, uh, uh, the uh, uh, forest tradition, Amaravati. Um, so what we had all that, and it was such a, such a rich experience. Uh, very powerful experience. It's not always easy by any means. You've been working in right livelihood, you know that. You come up very vigorously against each other. You come up against yourself very strongly. But uh, extraordinarily vital situation when it's enlivened by the Dhamma. So was that just going to disappear? Bante said, no, we must continue. We must find something that that takes it forward, that uh, moves it on. So uh, we started to think about businesses. We, uh, we set up a, uh, um, a cafe, Padmashuri. She originated that in uh, the building immediately next door to the old fire station, uh, what later became the Cherry Orchard, again, Requiescat in Parchem. Um, we, uh, we, we, we moved Friends Foods into the, into the old fire station. We'd started some building work, and uh, that then transformed into a Friends Building Service uh, run by Padraketu and Rutraketu. Uh, we got contracts from um, a local authority. Somebody who'd worked with us uh, was working for a, a housing association which was doing up old buildings for short-term short um, social housing, which meant basically going and putting chip wood paper, wood, what do you call it, chip wallpaper on the walls and, um, you know, covering up the cracks and then 
moving them in. Uh, so uh, that was an extremely effective right livelihood business for three or four years, I think. As long as that, yeah. Were you, were you part of that? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, anybody else here? Nobody's quite long enough in the tooth. Um, not that Subhadra's long enough. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, Friends Building Service was a very active team. I think at the height it had about 20 members. Uh, various other businesses came and went. Then uh, Kudananda, at Bante's urging, came to London and uh, started uh, selling... Um, gift items on market stalls and the rest is history the rest is you lot uh, Windhorse Trading grew out of that he moved to Cambridge handed on to Vadraketu and uh, all of this came out of that so uh, I told you that story partly for your information in case you don't know it because you need to know your history as Dr. Ambedkar said he who does not uh, know history cannot make history you need to know where we came from then you've got a better understanding of what you are what you're doing um, but also because I wanted you to get some glimpse of the, the sort of ideals the, the vision that uh, animated this whole project which, which you're engaged which I'm sure you're still working out uh, what we experienced in the building project at uh, the London Buddhist Centre, what became the London Buddhist Centre, was the enormous power of uh, people who are committed to the practice of the Dhamma working together. Enormous power. Uh, you, 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 well, you, you got so much energy. That was the first thing that really struck me. You got so much energy from working together with other people who shared your vision, your commitment. Um, I also saw how people who had very little understanding of Buddhism, who came to work with us, got a very strong charge. Uh, they, they sensed something very different. They wanted to be much more deeply involved with the Dhamma because they saw what the Dhamma did for uh, this particular situation. And uh, we discovered a lot. Uh, through working together in that way. Uh, we discovered a lot about what the Dhamma really means. So much of the theory of Sangha that we now uh, have in, uh, in the uh, Tri Ratna community uh, that Bhante developed and others have developed since Bhante came out of our experience of living and working together at 51 Roman Road, uh, E2OHU, London. Uh, is our, our very vivid connection with each other, our very strong interaction with each other, our strong sense that we were serving some uh, greater cause uh, that really formed the, the, the theory of, of, of Sangha as we know it. The whole idea of, of, of Sangha as um, bringing about a third order of consciousness. You remember Bante talks about group consciousness, individual consciousness, and what he says you can, he can only refer to by the Russian word sobornost. No doubt it's the same in Slovakian. Sobornost means collegiality or something of that kind. Uh, it, it's a, a term from uh, Orthodox Christianity apparently, but it, it means a sense of separateness and community. 
at one and the same time. So that you're completely yourself, but you're completely in harmony with others. So at its best, uh, that's what we experienced on a, on a really good day at uh, the, the, uh, in the building project at Sukhavati. That's what we experienced, yeah? And personally, I'm still cruising on that. Uh, the whole of the rest of my life in the Dhamma uh, has been based upon that experience, that powerful experience of, of sharing the Dhamma together and sharing a, a strong sense, a deep sense of community uh, through working together in such a vivid way. So uh, I believe very strongly in right livelihood. Uh, right livelihood in the broadest sense because, uh, well, I believe I'm involved in right livelihood now, working for the Dhamma in various ways. Uh, but right livelihood specifically in the sense of team-based uh, right livelihood business uh, is a very, very powerful transformative agent for those who engage with it. If you engage with it wholeheartedly, vigorously, it will really change you and you will get an experience that very, very difficult to get in any other context. So I strongly believe in the enterprise that you're involved with. I, I, I think it's worth emphasizing at this time because, uh, well, somebody said to me not, uh, not half an hour ago, um, well, right livelihood is considered a bit of a dinosaur in the, uh, in the Tree Ratna community. Well, I'm not allowed to swear. Um, <laughs> What a load of codswallop. Um, what a load of codswallop. Uh, it, I, I think if right livelihood is a dinosaur, well, I'm certainly a dinosaur. No, don't agree. <laughs> there are those who would strongly agree with that point of view, uh, and one that was better fossilized. But, um, yes, uh, um, right livelihood is not uh, a dinosaur. Uh, it, it's a complex, in the middle of a complex evolutionary phase. Um, you know, I was saying that at the time that the dinosaurs, the, the dinosaurs were, 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 were ruling, there's some tiny little mouse um, that was our ancestor that everybody thought, that's no, never going to go anywhere. <laughs> That'll never do anything. You know, just one stamp from a dinosaur and it's done. And uh, look at us today. Yeah, look at us today. But, uh, um, yes, it, it's, it's had a complex history, uh, Right Livelihood. And, uh, yes, we've seen a number of Right Livelihood businesses go out of business. Uh, Windhorse Trading itself, Windhorse Evolution, has been through difficulties and maybe has more difficulties, who knows. But Right Livelihood is definitely not dead. Uh, I'm sure of it. Because it's so effective. Uh, and many of us know that many of us have experienced that we will not give up whatever happens we will not give up whatever the economic circumstances whatever the twists and turns of fate we will not give up we will if we have to recreate uh, team based right livelihood if it uh, does chance to go for instance the LBC I'm the president of the LBC right livelihood is not in good shape at the LBC uh, Friends Foods has gone uh, the cherry orchard is, is no longer, uh, uh, well, it's gone. It's been just rented out. The building has been rented out. Um, but uh, people there are determined that there will be team-based right livelihood there because uh, what else are, are people to do? Uh, 
they need to those who are sincerely dedicated to the Dhamma, who want to lead a full Dhamma life, need to live their, their life as fully as possible within a Dhamma context. Um, I'm very fortunate myself. I, I, I'm quite clear about this right from the start. Uh, I just determined that I would not have a career. As a young man at the age of 24, when I became an order member, I just determined that I would give my life to the Dhamma, that I would not, uh, unless you know, circumstances meant I had to for short-term reasons, I would not do anything that was not directly connected with the Dhamma. And I've never, ever regretted that. I have no money. I have no... Um, um, you know, sort of pension, etc., uh, etc. Et I don't care. Uh, I've led the life that I want to lead. I've led uh, a life that I believe is is of value in the world, and I really want other people to lead that sort of life too. So, uh, yeah, don't let anybody say that right livelihood, team-based right livelihood, is a dinosaur. You, you can you can break the precepts if people say that. <laughs> You have my absolute permission. I, I give you a, a plenary indulgence. Uh, for free, a plenary indulgence. Um, yeah, even a little violence is, is just... But certainly harsh speech. It's rubbish. It's just nonsense. Uh, it's just pessimism. Uh, you know, often people have had some bad experience, and my goodness, bad experiences abound in life. And, and that colours their, their view of things, or whatever. But it's certainly not finished. We live at very difficult times, very difficult economic times. I don't know, I haven't talked to anybody, I don't know what effect that's having on you. But I can't imagine that it's particularly good, the, uh, the climate around us. Um, and, uh, well, really, I think we are living in uh, an extraordinarily problematic economic environment, uh, both for you as uh, um, uh, workers for this business, but our whole, whole, uh, whole economy, the whole Western economy, the whole world economy, is uh, in a very, very strange and, and difficult state. We just don't know what's going to come out of it. But the one thing that we can be sure of is there are enough of us who are determined to create circumstances where we and others can work together uh, on the basis of the Dharma uh, for something to go on. So just make up your minds to that. Just, uh, just put all other thoughts aside. Just determine that, come what may, you will continue team-based right livelihood in one form or another. It's so important, so valuable. We've got to change this wretched world. It's such a, a, a mess. I work a lot in India, and of course I see that the horrible state of India... And I see the, um, you know, the belief that there is in the West that India is rising out of its uh, you know, terrible third world condition and becoming a, you know, a modern um, uh, economy and so forth. That, that's certainly true for you know, the, 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 the very huge uh, middle class of India. But uh, in India, since liberalization in the, in, uh, the uh, early 90s, late 80s and early 90s, malnutrition has increased, uh, poverty has increased, uh, more people are now in a worse condition than they were before, even though a lot more people are in a far better condition than they were before. Extremes have multiplied. And uh, 
social tensions are far greater. It's very little known, but that in India there's a very widespread uh, Marxist, uh, well, let a Maoist incursion, Naxalitism, which affects something like uh, a third of India uh, under uh, armed insurrection. There are quite large areas of India where the police do not go at night. Uh, these are the tensions that have come in India under the influence of this uh, so-called liberalization, this movement into the, the dream market economy that's going to solve all our problems. Once we all go shopping, once we have a Tesco's on every street corner in every city of the world, every village of the world, Sukhavati will have arrived. This is the dream, a shopper's paradise. And it just doesn't work. And... Uh, well, we believed that until three years ago here, uh, when suddenly contradictions that had been implicit in the post-war economy came to the surface. Um, when the, the, uh, the, the myth of eternal growth was exploded, uh, when it became clear that it's not possible to have a completely stable uh, economy in which everybody is a winner. Um, no doubt will come out of this somehow or other. But uh, cracks have been exposed. Deep, deep cracks have been exposed. And uh, it's also becoming far clearer, and there's been much more public debate about this, that uh, uh, a bigger telly does not bring greater happiness. Yes, increase in wealth certainly does uh, uh, bring greater happiness up to a certain point. But it's a relatively low point. Uh, there's a lot of debate about what it is. I saw recently that $50,000 is posited as the, 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 uh, the rate at which happiness arrives, if you see what I mean. Um, but that's in America where you don't have any health care, you don't have this, you don't have that. Uh, it's probably quite a bit lower here. I, 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 I've also read that it's something like uh, uh, 10 or 15,000 pounds. Once you've got that much... You, if if you, you, you really sort of examine yourself and don't just let yourself go with the sense that they've got something more than me, therefore I must have more, uh, you can be perfectly happy. You've done nothing that uh, you really basically want. The problem is most people feel dissatisfied because other people have got more and because they're being shown that other people have got more on the telly every day. I mean, it's appalling in India. You see people living in abject poverty with the telly on, with uh, the Bollywood lifestyle, which, you know, makes us envious. Well, it would make us envious if we really wanted that much glitz, Baroque glitz. Um, but, uh, yes, it, it, it feeds your sense, well, they've got it, why shouldn't I have it? I remember I, I discovered uh, several years ago when I was supported by Windhorse Trading that uh, I was being supported at a rate that was lower than the average uh, Windhorse Trading uh, employee. And I remember the feelings of envy that arose in me, <laughs> whereas I'd been perfectly all right up until then. And, you know, I wanted the extra £2,000. What for? I don't know. But, uh, you know, when you see that other people have got more than you, you want it. So uh, most of what people experience is, uh, is envy. It's not real need. It's the sense that you haven't got what other people want that makes you unhappy. So, uh, yes, uh, it, it's been exposed that, uh, become clear, that people really need 
relatively little. Yeah, a lot of people in the world need a lot more. There's no doubt about it in India. Many people need uh, quite a bit more than they have now, just so they can live a, a decent life. You know, malnutrition is still very widespread. Many of my friends in India, even people involved in the movement, are not able to get uh, sufficient uh, nutritious food because, you know, the world hike in food prices has uh, priced them out of that. So, uh, yes, you do need a base, certain basic level of uh, economic well-being. But beyond that, it doesn't bring, bring happiness. Uh, and uh, we need to be demonstrating that. We need to be demonstrating a different way of life. We need to be demonstrating a way of life in which uh, you're getting the satisfactions that you really need from your life uh, that don't require huge economic investment. Therefore, do not uh, place great burdens on the environment around us. Don't set up uh, great tensions within, uh, uh, within society, within global society. You know, the, between the haves and the have-nots. It's disgusting from India, to, to, from a poor village in India, to think back to what I see in England. It, it, it makes me feel, well, uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, the, the, and, and you can imagine what, what a, a poor Arab, I, f I feel particularly for, for people from the Muslim world who have been really done badly by their politicians and uh, by colonial uh, history. Uh, by the, the third, uh, the, the the Cold War, you know what it must be like for them to look at uh, the world from the, the streets in Cairo or, or, or Baghdad, far worse. Uh, you can imagine. I think, you know, given my own temperament, I think I would probably have become a terrorist. Uh, don't think it's hard to imagine. So yes, uh, we we need to demonstrate a way of life that's quite different, uh, which is satisfying fulfilling, uh, uh, kindly, uh, that lives at ease with the, the whole world, that lives at ease with our environment, we need to demonstrate that that can be done here, yay, in Cambridge itself, uh, that uh, uh, is, is a really real alternative. That's what I think Right Livelihood is, is, is about. It's about creating a way of life, an economic uh, activity that is quite different. At least it's different in spirit. Hopefully it's different in ethics. Uh, it's different in the relations that people have with each other. And uh, yes, it's different in its aspirations and, and aims and objectives. This is what we're trying to do with, with our right livelihood businesses. And we must not, we cannot let that slip. Uh, once that's gone, uh, Buddhism becomes a mere therapy. It's what terrifies me. I, I sometimes get a sort of glimpse down a, you know, a horrible forking path of, of, of history, of, of the future. You suddenly see Buddhism becoming a sort of uh, lifestyle choice. Yuck. Um, you know, you can, you, can, you can have the right Buddhist badges and, uh, you know, you go to certain um, kind of therapy groups where you meditate and so forth. But uh, basically, you're an ordinary middle-class consumer uh, with that sort of style choice. You could become a goth, of course, uh, dress in black and uh, pierce your eyebrows, uh, or you could become a Buddhist. 
you know, one or the other. Um, it's, just a, it's just a lifestyle. Though there probably are other choices besides being a goth. I, I'm not up to date these days. Uh, uh, yeah, but Buddhism can just become a lifestyle choice. Uh, but it's so much more than that. Uh, Buddhism is about uh, the deepest, the most radical transformation of ourselves and of the world around us that there can possibly be. Uh, Buddhism is about living in accordance with the way things really are. It's living with the fundamental forces of life. And that means living with conditionality. It means living face to face with the reality that things arise in dependence on conditions. That nothing is eternal. Nothing stands above or beyond outside change. It means living with karma. Living with the fact that your actions shape your experience. That what you do forms your mind. Uh, this is what karma really means. We often talk about it as if it meant, um, you know, bricks fall on your head if you do something bad and that sort of thing. Well, maybe they do, I don't know. But the main effect of karma is to change you. Your mind arises in a different way because of your actions. Uh, everything that you do forms your mind and uh, then your mind forms your experience and your interaction with your experience so being a Buddhist means living in accordance with karma it also means living in accordance with dharma uh, there is a force in reality there is a flow within reality that is beyond you as an individual there is uh, a, a flow of conditionality that uh, is implicit within the way things are that when you open up to it carries you to enlightenment that's part of the way things are it's built into things there is this uh, set of conditions just as gravity is part of the way things are these set of conditions are there within reality that lead you on to Buddhahood once you align yourself with them. When you build for yourself through karma a sufficiently open and uh, subtle mind, that flow of dharmic conditions unfolds within you. So as Buddhists, we're trying to live in accordance with the way things are in accordance with Pratita Samuppada, in the general sense, and especially in accordance with karmic conditionality and with dharmic conditionality. So when we're working together, we're trying to uh, work on the basis of, of karma. We're trying to make sure that all our actions uh, are skillful. All our actions modify our own experience in a way that uh, makes us emerge as better, richer, uh, fuller human beings. Uh, more sensitive, more in contact with the world around us. Uh, and more skillful in our interaction with the world around us. And we're trying to open ourselves up to uh, the deeper forces of the universe, the deeper forces of the universe embodied in the, the figure of the Buddha uh, that can lift us, that can take us uh, forward in a way beyond our willing. 
This is the mystery of, uh, of what happens after stream entry. Something opens up within you that is not you. It's not somebody else either. Uh, but something opens up within you that works spontaneously through you. You simply need to cooperate with it, not get in its way. You need to, well, you can work with it and accelerate it. Uh, you can't stop it. So we're trying to cooperate with these uh, karmic and dharmic forces. This is what our right livelihood is about. It's about trying to activate karmic conditionality, working together in a way that is skillful, so that we become far better, far richer uh, human beings, far more ethical, far more sensitive, far happier. And I've seen that happen. Uh, there are quite a number of you here I've known for many years, and uh, many of you, all of you, I've seen transform yourselves through the practice of right livelihood. Of course you've been meditating. Well, most of you, most of you have been meditating. You've been studying the Dhamma. You've been doing other things. But probably for many of you, right livelihood has been your main practice. I think that's the case for me, that my, my work for the Dhamma has been my main practice. The other things feed into that. In a sense, I meditate so that I can serve the Dhamma. I study the Dhamma so I can serve the Dhamma. Uh, and so you, you, your, your right livelihood activity is, is a sort of focus, for many people at least, it's a focus for your Dhamma life. It's the way in which you activate your Dhamma life. Without it, everything is bits and pieces and you're just a normal consumer, just a normal a Tesco victim. Um, and um, sorry Tesco's but um, <laughs> I much prefer Sainsbury's myself anyway uh, um, yeah you're just a normal consumer uh, but with a Buddhist tinge a lifestyle Buddhist you could be a goth but you're a Buddhist but it, with right livelihood it all comes together it's all focused it's all uh, integrated around your working life uh, and your working life is your social life to some extent uh, and if you supplement that with other Buddhist practices with life in a community uh, with uh, going to a center and uh, going on retreat and so forth become a very very full and satisfying activation of the principle of karma it will not always be easy um, guaranteed well, no, that's not guaranteed. The Buddha said that for some people it's uh, easy at the beginning and easy up to the end. For some people it's easy at the beginning and difficult at the end. For some people it's difficult at the beginning, easy at the end. For some people it's difficult all the way through. <laughs> uh, it's not Dhamma's fault, if you see what I mean. It, it's just to do with you and your history and your particular character and so forth and so on and circumstance. Uh, the Dhamma life is not necessarily an easy life. I remember when we were working at, uh, at uh, Sukhavati, that great Zen guru, uh, Atula, he was the chief um, it, um, a carpenter, well, chief everything, actually. He's now a psychotherapist, but uh, it's an easy step from carpentry to psychotherapy. <laughs> and I remember, I remember him working, um, nailing um, plasterboard on the ceiling with, uh, with Padmavajra, 
young Padmavadra. Can you believe it? Young Padmavadra. 18 or 19, I think he was. And, and Padmavadra was saying, Oh, Attila, it's so hard. And Attila turned to him and said, Nobody said it was going to be easy. <laughs> believe me nobody said it was going to be easy the Buddha certainly did not say it was going to be easy but uh, if you care about ethical values if you care about the Dharma right livelihood is one of the most effective ways of focusing your your uh, your spiritual endeavour focusing your karmic activity your karmic training you need above all to focus on karma Uh, in Buddhism in a way we're not so interested in what the result is you know I get fed up with all this sort of concern with stream entry and all the rest of it do you know what I mean because it's a bit like sort of wanting the flower before you planted the the seed the Buddha said uh, just don't worry about the harvest worry about the planting Uh, don't bother about the, the, the end result create the conditions right livelihood is the context within which you can create those conditions for your own karmic transformation and your karmic transformation is the conditions for your dharmic transformation the Buddha is here in the middle of your your warehouse and uh, he can be here in the middle of your life Uh, you will feel the, uh, the pull of the dharma Uh, within your life you'll feel the dharma sort of lifting you at times as you become more and more karmically effective as you act more and more skillfully the dharma will be an active force within your life I think it's something we don't always take uh, sufficient care of in uh, thinking about it in Buddhism I've been writing about uh, some latest conversations I've had with Bhante on the theme of imagination and um, we dared to talk a little bit about God. So I have a new revelation. <laughs> uh, don't worry, relax. <laughs> um, well, in, in a way, you know, people like me at least, and perhaps many of you, come from a, an anti-theistic background. So we want to get away from the whole idea of God. But often what we do is throw out... Uh, uh, the baby with the bathwater. Um, in getting rid of uh, all that is uh, unhelpful to humanity in the idea of a creator God, we lose the sense of something supervenient, something that is more than us, something that is not merely a sort of principle, an abstract ideal, but uh, a, a real living something hard to really find a way to talk about it and Buddhism is brilliant at making clear that we can't talk about it but we shouldn't think of it as a vacuum or an emptiness or a nothingness even emptiness in the sense of shunyata is not an emptiness Uh, we shouldn't think of uh, this dharma as something inert Uh, dharma is is an active factor once karmic uh, preparation has taken place uh, dharma becomes an active factor in your life, it becomes a motive force, something that lifts you up, gets you out of bed takes you through the day uh, takes you into the most difficult 
uh, and painful of circumstances enables you to transform them. Uh, in a sense, beyond your own willing. Remember Bante's descriptions of uh, the period when he was um, uh, in, 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 in Bombay, just at the time of Dr. Ambedkar's conversion. You've read it in his life story, probably. But he said he was visiting this um, friend of his, very interesting Parsi friend, who uh, received messages from God. Uh, anyway, that's another story. Um, but uh, uh, Bante found him quite interesting because he did clearly have access to some higher dimensions of experience. He didn't take God seriously. In fact, uh, Dr. Mehta's wife uh, said to him, he found it quite, she found it quite uh, strange that God always seemed to agree with Dr. Mehta. <laughs> Um, anyway, anyway, Bante was with him, mainly for, for meditation, and uh, Dr. Mehta was pressing him to stay, but Bante had a strong feeling that he had to go, that he had to leave, and he had to go to Nagpur, he had some arrangement there, he could have put it off, but he felt he had to go, so he went to Nagpur, when he got off the train, he learned that Dr. Ambedkar had died, uh, which of course a huge crisis for the, the, the the, the millions of his followers who are now completely leaderless just six weeks into conversion and uh, so he, he found himself in the most critical situation of his life where he uh, was faced by people who'd lost all their hope all their hope was pinned on Dr. Abedka they had nothing themselves most of them completely ignorant, illiterate and so on and he realised that everything at least at that time, was up to him. And he says that uh, for the next days, he hardly sort of thought about what he was doing. He said he'd get up, he wouldn't know what he was going to say, but the words would just be there, and in a way he'd be standing to one side, watching the words form and come out of his mouth. And what he was saying was exactly what people needed to hear, and he gave something like 30 talks in, in three days. It always grows every time I hear it or tell it. It's a truly Indian story. And um, he said he, that, that was the most powerful experience of his life, that he definitely had the sense that something, if you could call it, call it something, was working through him. Uh, the Dharma was working through him without his conscious willing of it. Not that he was you know, the, the ch a channel in a mediumistic sense. There wasn't something else there but a broader dimension of, well, in a way even to say his mind is to narrow it or to restrict it, a broader dimension of mind itself, of the Dharma itself, naturally flowed through him. That's uh, the Dharma as, as a powerful force or current that lifts us up and takes us forward. And our karma work is uh, the preparation for that. Uh, and our right livelihood, team-based right livelihood, is probably the most effective situation that most of us could find for all its difficulties, for all its uh, unsatisfactoriness, for all its um, shakiness in economic terms. It's something of exceptional value that is uh, one of the most distinctive and important aspects of our, of our movement and that you must not uh, let go of, even if... Windhorse evolution uh, could not go on, and I don't see why it shouldn't, but let's suppose it couldn't go on 
That's not the end. You just pick yourselves up, put things together again. And uh, in, in accordance with the new circumstances, the new situation, you must... Because otherwise you cannot, it's very hard, and it's not that you cannot, very hard to live a complete dumber life. Very hard indeed. And I think one of the, 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 the seductions, the problems of uh, uh, Tesco consciousness is that uh, it, it sort of appears so sort of um, complete. Uh, you, you can live a sort of complete and apparently satisfying life, which even has a sense of growth within it. Because there's always a new bit of technology. Do you, do you, literally, people have a sense of things getting better all the time because they're getting you know, new things, more, more sophisticated things. Some time ago, I, I decided, uh, uh, while I was at Marjorie Malerka, I was going to take a... Am I doing for time? Am I right? Uh, I, I'm used to talking in India, so I have no sense of time. Uh, <laughs> Um, I took a vow of, uh, uh, of technological brahmacharya, um, which is much more difficult than the other kind, I assure you. Um, <laughs> it's much easier to... Oh, no, we won't go into that. Um, um, yeah, yeah, because I, I saw, actually, my friends, my good friends, senior order members, no less, you know, sort of constantly discussing a new tweak to their computers. And... Uh, I got bored with the conversations for a start, and I ran out of money. Um, I couldn't keep up. So I thought I could be superior by um, claiming um, renunciation, if you see what I mean. But joking apart, yes, I, I just decided I wasn't going to upgrade my mobile phone. So I've got um, a mobile phone that now people think I've got as a sort of retro statement. Uh, but no, I just got it because I didn't change it, as it were. Uh, it does everything I need to do. Mostly one of the buttons doesn't work, but it's only nine, and as long as I don't ring a nine, it's okay. Um, uh, um, uh, so, yeah, I just decided I wasn't going to keep on the, the, the technological rat race. And you get a very strange impression. You know, you meet people, and they've got a new phone. And it does amazingly new things. And if you, if you express the mildest interest in their mobile phone, they'll spend an hour boring you with what it can do. Uh, and, I mean, Apple users, blimey, don't go near them. They're just always telling you about the wonders of it. Or I met somebody the other day who's, who's, who uses Linux. And uh, that was it after I sort of said, oh, use Linux. Um, that was it. That was the conversation for the next three days. Um, so you, you get, you know, and I, sort of the occasional yawn just didn't seem to get noticed. Um, so you know, technology is very, very seductive, and the whole nature of of, of uh, the times we live in, where we are in a, a time of enormous, rapid innovation, somehow gives people a sense of progress, but it's completely artificial. Nothing, no greater value has come into the world, no real greater sense of satisfaction. In fact, by and large, you are removed from real experience and have a stronger sense of um, a neurotic craving because uh, you are, are less and less in contact with what's out there. Uh, um, a friend of mine uh, took his uh, grandchildren uh, for a, a drive... Um, on holiday in France 
and they were driving through France and he said the whole time they were sitting on their PSPs sounds painful doesn't it sitting on a PSP Uh, on their some sort of (laughs) what is it (laughs) a handheld thing uh, that does things Uh, (laughs) and watching videos on a a, a portable DVD all all the way through um, all the way through France you know, which I remember going on holiday with my parents and just staring out the window, open-mouthed at these weird foreigners all around us <laughs> who drove on the other side of the road and um, their, their toilets were just holes in the ground. Yeah, in, in France it used to be like that. Um, uh, swinging from trees and things like that. <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 it's just so seductive. It, uh, it gives you such a sort of artificial sense of of satisfaction, but nothing real. So, uh, yeah, that's the world that we slip into uh, if we uh, we don't have a way of focusing our spiritual lives. So we become normal consumers who are just consuming a bit of Buddhism on the side. And we're probably good people. We're probably better than the average co- uh, Tesco user. We probably recycle our glass and, um, you know, put some money to the Karanar Trust and so forth. Good, great, wonderful. But uh, it's not really transformative. It's not really changing us. And it's certainly not changing the world around us. Don't let go of it. Uh, Don't be discouraged. Uh, And there will be much to discourage you. But, um, well, if you're discouraged, that's your problem. Um, it's not the circumstances, it's your problem. Uh, it's your uh, lack of uh, faith, your lack of confidence. You must uh, renew your belief in the, uh, the ability of the Dharma to change the world, the ability of the Dharma to, to transform society. Uh, if you don't believe that, well, get out and get a good middle-class consumer life while you can. Uh, because who knows whether it's going to last very long. Just go out and get it. Don't waste time. You'll be old and regretting it later. But if you believe that the Dharma uh, is, uh, is the truth, if you believe that karma is the really significant force in our lives, it's what really gives us satisfaction. If you believe that the Dharma is the ultimate nature of things, it's the Dharma that can... Uh, carry us to the fullest and most complete satisfaction right livelihood is the key it's what will focus uh, condense everything else in your life so that it becomes effective so uh, I believe in you I believe in, uh, in, in right livelihood business I believe very strongly in wind horse evolution I believe that uh, it will go on whether in this form or any other and it doesn't matter Things come, things go. That's the nature of conditioned existence. Nothing lasts forever. We should not become attached to any particular manifestation within reality. And uh, we may have to seize our opportunities to, uh, to uh, metamorphose into something that's better adapted to the circumstances. Or we may find that what we're doing can be taken on to greater and greater strengths. But do not let go of the central vision, this vision of 
a working life together of uh, a life that is ethical, where you're not doing any, any harm to, the, to uh, other people, to the world around you. A life that is generous, where you're doing something to, to help others. So you're, you're making money, you're uh, uh, providing resources that can help others. That is uh, creative in that sense, uh, at least, if possible, in other senses too, where you're really transforming the, the world around you that is communal, where you're living together as a, a, a spiritual community, and that is an arena for direct spiritual practice. The work itself, the very movement of the, uh, the box onto the shelf, is a karma. Uh, if it's done in the right spirit, it can be modifying your consciousness. Um, oh gosh, a hymn just came into my mind. Uh, don't get worried. Uh, Oh, he who sweeps a room with this axiom for thy sake makes that and the action fine. Wow, that's George Herbert, isn't it? Yes. Anyway, um, taking the transposing it into a thoroughly dharmic context, it means that if you do any action with a, a deep sense of the nature of things and a deep sense of, uh, of uh, the Buddha, devotion to the Buddha, uh, and to the Dharma and the Sangha, well, the very simple action of putting a box on a shelf, filling in a, 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 a form, uh, adding figures, whatever it is that you do, can be transformative. Uh, it's the spirit that, that, that counts. Once the action itself is innocent, uh, it's the spirit that it's done with that counts. Uh, and you couldn't have... Um, a better situation than a team-based right livelihood. Most of us could not function sitting up in a mountain. It might not be the best thing for us to do. Um, and so forth. We can't all work in centres. There just isn't the cash for it. Uh, so most of us need to do something. And if we can do something commercial that uh, supports us and that uh, provides a surplus for the Buddhist movement, that is um, a wonderful thing. And if it brings us into a, a positive interaction with the world around us uh, and creates a, an environment for us, that is just a wonderful thing to do with this precious human life. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.